The following episode covers issues including depression and suicide, which some of you may find distressing. If you or someone you know needs help, the Lifeline number is 13 11 14. One of the issues for the Nashos is they're a forgotten part of Australia's war history. The worst part about it was when they said it was all over with now, like a door being shut and you're left in the dark, and the hardest part was transitioning back into civilian life. They had to survive afterwards themselves. Loads of them couldn't because there's been many suicides. You're listening to The Men Australia Forgot, following the stories of Australia's last conscripts and their path to reparation. Welcome back. The Men Australia Forgot. My name's Aidan Taylor. It's great to have your company. I'll be with you for the next half hour or so as we keep on kicking, as they say, and telling the stories of the 65 to 72 national servicemen. You can email me anytime at themenaustraliaforgot at gmail.com. So that's one word, themenaustraliaforgot at gmail.com. So we're now six episodes into this series. And something that's become abundantly clear to me in my conversations with Nashos is this underlying sense of guilt and regret at what they had to drag their families through all those years ago, not only in being separated for such long periods of time, but in the ways it affected them financially and socially, they were just as much part of this experience. Families were torn apart in some cases. And spouses and partners and brothers, sisters, mums and dads, they were all left to pick up these broken men who'd been left traumatised and displaced by the two years that they were forced to serve. And why I'm mentioning this now is because I recently received a message from Nasho Fago President Jeff Parks about a lady who reached out to him with a story of how she lost her Nasho husband to suicide when she was only 23. And 50 years on, She's gotten through the other side, which is a great success story in itself. So I just had to get her on because she has such a powerful story touching on this other side of conscription, which rarely gets mentioned publicly. And I'm pleased to say that she's very kindly offered to share some of her experience today. So grab a cuppa, sit back and listen to this most important story. Becoming a parent for the first time is supposed to be the happiest moment of your life. It's what Sally from Victoria had always wanted. She could not wait for that first embrace when Bub was born. That most precious moment with her husband, who wanted nothing more than to become a dad. But Sally's husband would never get to meet him. You see, he was a national serviceman. And the experience of conscription? Well, what can I say? It wrecked his life. And it all came to a head one night in 1973. Only a few months before their son was born. Okay, here we are. Rolling in three, two, one. Sally, thank you for joining us today. 
I just want to start by saying that you have requested to keep full anonymity for family reasons. So why is it that you've chosen now to speak out and share your experience? Uh, I want to share my experience now because there's other armed forces people overseas and if um, something happens to them and they've got family and wives and children, I don't want them to go through what I had to go through. And tell us about your husband. So for the sake of this interview, we won't be revealing his full identity for family reasons as requested. So we'll refer to him as Len or Lenny. So when did he pass away? He died in July of 73, 1973, sorry. Um, he left home at night and he said to me, um, goodbye, I don't know when I'll see you again. And that's all, I, I didn't take any notice of it. And the next thing I know is I got a, a knock on the door at 20 to 2 in the morning with two really lovely policemen at the front door telling me that he'd been involved in a car accident. I was three and a half months pregnant with our first child when he did this. And when we got the police report and the coroner's inquest, it was said that his death was caused by a road accident, possibly suicide. I, I met him at a very young age and he um, he was a great guy. He, he, he was a fantastic guy and he did his two years, I call it jail sentence, because he never went overseas. He had to serve so after he came home, he was still something. Then he started doing all different things, like he started gambling and started drinking and everything got depressed, everything over it. Um, mm. We got married in 71, and um, by 73, I don't, he, I don't think he could cope any longer, so he went out this night and he um, went head on into a bridge. Yeah. Mm. I'm so sorry to hear about that. Yeah, it's 50 years ago, so... Um, I've got hardened to the fact, right, but I don't want what happened to me after that to happen to any other lady or man in the situation I was left in by the um, government and all the rules and regulations. And yeah, he was um, he was born in 45 and he died in 73. He's only really young. So I just wanted to clarify, yeah. no one else in your family knew the real reason why Lenny died. All they know is that it was a car accident. The only other part is that he had alcohol in his body, and that's the only thing anybody knew. Why have you chosen to keep it this way? Um, because I didn't want to hurt anybody. Like my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, they had a couple of young kids. It was very traumatic for them anyway, and mm. I kept most of it to myself right through from when things started going, when I noticed a change in him. No, I'm a very private person. So you have no regrets? No regrets about keeping it from your, your son or anything? No. No, no. No. Then it was his choice. I told him, you can look at the wedding albums. He can do anything he wants. But he said, Mum, I didn't know, Dad. He said, I don't want to live in the past. I want to live in the future for my, my family. That's what he says. And if he ever asks me, yeah, I'll tell him. You know, and to do what I've done with you is incredible for me. Yeah, and look, Sally, I can say that we are really grateful that you're willing to be so open with us. I can just see how you could be a real voice of comfort for anyone else who's going through a similar experience to what you did all those years ago. I just hope it helps somebody. Yeah, I'm sure it will. So let's just separate him from the act of suicide for a second and focus on who he was as a person because he was a person. He was your devoted husband at that stage as well. So when did you meet him for the first time? I was about 15. Wow. I was much younger than him. We met 
then he went into the, his marble was drawn, so he had to go into Nasho, and he went to Pukapunyal. He would have only been 21 and you were 15. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the way it was back then. Hey, you, you meet young and you, and you get married and have kids and get on with your life. But in this case, Conscription had other plans. And do you remember where you met him? Yeah, I just, I just met him. I was working at a company. I just started work. We just happened to say hello and started off just being friends, you know. And um, What do you remember about him? What struck you about him straight away? Back then, I'd say his nature. He had a kind heart. He was good. He was very friendly, a jovial sort of guy. The respect he had for people. His mother was a widow, so he looked after his mum. And he was just a very easygoing, kind-hearted, considerate person. Yeah. And what did he do for work before National Service? Before National Service, he worked for a hardware company. The section he worked in was called the Architect Selection. He'd have to work out all the security door locks. and. So he was quite talented as well, quite crafty with his hands. Yeah, he liked that. He did. He painted a cupboard once and I almost died because it turned out red and it was all psychedelic paint. <laughs> you know, he just loved mucking around and, yeah, loved life in general. Yeah, and what did he want to do with his life? He wanted to be a dad and a family man and um, just like, you know, his own family, you know, look after everybody and just be an ordinary person. You know, go away on holidays with the family, which we did until he um, died and very close to his family. And I got very close too because I'm an only child, so they were my my family. And did he have any hobbies? Like what what was his favourite sport, for instance, or thing to do? Oh, no, it it was... he wasn't really in the hobby. I always remember once when we went away with my parents. He'd never been fishing in his life. Dad showed him how to cast a line and everything like that. Well, he got a fish on the end of it, but forgot that he had to um, wind the reel in. And he was walk- walking back on the road trying to get this fish in, and Dad had to drop everything and said, no, you've got to wind it in. <laughs> and he thought it was great because he caught a fish, but he, almost got- he forgot to wind it in. He thought you just pull it in, yeah. It was sort of funny in a lot of ways, and my mother loved him, so, um, yeah, it was great, yeah. And when were you at your happiest with him? Was there a particular point when you just thought, this is the way that I want my life to be? I think it was when I was about 17, because his brother, they just had their first child, and see how happy they were and see how, how happy he was to see his brother's first child, then I thought, yeah, this is he's a really kind-hearted guy, and a good-hearted guy, and it just went on from there. So, he was a very doting uncle as well. Oh, you could yeah. see that he was a family man at heart. Yep, very much so. Yeah, very much so, yeah. And when was he actually drafted? Oh, 66, I think. And it was in one of the first drafts. I can't remember the years. I try to forget them, if you know what I mean. I don't. I've got his particulars here, but um, I just try to block out. I have for many years tried to block out. It still gets to me a bit, you know, even now, yeah. I think the hardest part was when he died, I was pregnant, right, and I worked until the December of 73. I then went to back then, I think it was called Social Security, I can't remember, and I went there thinking, yeah, okay, I'll be able to get the widow's pension. I've been, I was classed a widow, but to go into a place, a government place like that and be told, sorry, you're not a widow because you're 23 and you've got no children. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, what am I? Back then it was called unmarried mothers. But back then they said I wasn't one of those either because I was a widow. So I was I was a nothing. So I had to live on the bit of money that we'd saved until I until my son was born. Then 
after about four weeks, I was classed as a widow. Did you get any insurance payouts from your husband's death? No, nothing. It's a funny story, actually. Um, we had a gentleman back then, you know, he had the door-to-door people, and it was about three weeks before he died. These people came to the door and uh, were selling life insurance, and we said, oh, yeah, we'll talk about it, and they came in. We said, look, well, we're interested at the time, very interested, and we're going to do it, and we put the cheque in the mail, but that cheque had not reached the company. They probably got it the day after he died. So, no, I got nothing. But there's people out there that are ten times worse off than I am. I class myself as lucky. I got through it. You know, with a few problems myself, I got through it. Yeah. But I often think when you hear of young couples where the husband or the wife's been killed and they've been left with children, I really think, you know, I'd love to be able to speak to them and say, hey, you can do it. You can do it. We're stronger than what we are. We think we are. It's a hard job, but we can do it. All right, it's a lot to take in, listening to what Sally's saying here. And if you're sitting there scratching your head and you're wondering, how on earth did she manage to slip through the cracks without being offered any support, then you're not alone. In fact, I felt the exact same thing when I was hearing her story for the first time. But it all comes back to this, so this is why it happened. Lenny's case fell in this awkward grey area. So you think about it, he wasn't a soldier on active duty when he died, and his death didn't happen on a training exercise for national service or a deployment. So holding the government accountable would have been virtually impossible, not to mention unheard of. And there wasn't really any support set up for Nashos and their families to begin with. It was a completely different time. If you didn't serve in a war zone, which was the case for many national servicemen, then you got nothing. That's the way the system was. And it carried over to cases like Sally's where if their husbands didn't have that warlike service, then good luck getting any support. You couldn't get a war widow's pension because you didn't qualify. That was it. Now, this very issue of warlike eligibility has major ramifications for Nashos right across the country today. You look back to episode two when we spoke to Graham Parler, the Nasho who went to Malaysia in the late 1960s, and you heard all of the issues that he's having with getting gold card recognition. Despite the fact he almost died during a raid by communist terrorists, he can't get the gold card because the government says that he did not serve in a recognized war zone So that's what we're talking about here. These little technicalities that seem negligible on the face of it, but have a massive impact in the grand scheme of things. And what you're hearing here with Sally, well, it's just another example of that. And another example of how conscription affected their lives, not only for the men themselves, but the loved ones around them. In Sally's case also, you have the issue of age. So she was only 23 when Lenny died when the receiving age for a war widow pension was about 65. It just doesn't make sense. Now, when Lenny passed away in 1973, Sally had already seen the signs. The person he was when he joined the army was completely different to the one she met on the other side. Well, before he went in, um, 
he was a happy sort of bloke. I noticed the changes were that he started gambling. He'd gamble his wages away, wouldn't think about it. Then all of a sudden he started drinking a lot. He got a really hot temper with it. So, you know, things got a bit tough in the last couple of months. Once we found out we're having a baby, well, then things got worse because he knew he was doing the wrong things like gambling and he was a depression. But I was backing him all the way and that I think that's why things happened. There was no such thing as anger management or anything like that. They had to cope themselves, you know. But I could see that he wasn't himself. He just, his whole whole being started to change, his attitudes, everything. In a way, was he uncharacteristically violent as well because of what was going on in his mind? Not, not against me, never, never. It was more of a thing like, why is it? And pick up something and throw it. But never throw it at somebody. And this was at a time too when mental health wasn't that widely accepted. That would have made it difficult as well. But did he talk about conscription and what he went through? He talked about it. He'd just say that, you know, you're not going overseas. You know, some people we know did. But he said it was the not knowing what's going to happen next. You're, you're there for two years. That to him was more frustrating. He would have preferred for them to say, righto, you're going. They didn't know. They had no idea what was going on. And I honestly think that is where a lot of the Nasho guys that stayed where they had to, they were doing what they had to, but I reckon they were living on their nerves because they didn't know from one minute to the other what was going on. And they had no help for the people that didn't go overseas and, and less, less help for the ones that come home for, for a while. I reckon it tormented their brains. To me, they should have been told, well, hey, your platoon will not be going to Vietnam or, or this, you know. So you had two years of marriage with him before he passed away. Yep. Did you see a path forward? Did you think that he'd find a way through it? I hoped he would find a way through it. Don't get me wrong, we were very, very happy. We worked on it together, but this one particular time, you just couldn't cover it up. I knew he was bad, but I never expected what was going to come of it. You know, we used to sit down and talk about it, and he'd explain it. But this particular night, I had no inkling. He, he seemed to be happy. He had a cold, and he just said, oh, I'm just going to go out. He said, I just need to get out. He said, see you when I see you, or goodbye. And that was all it was said. The next minute I know, I've got to knock on the door about six hours later. He died at 20 to 11 at night. I still sit and think about it. I do. I blame myself in some ways. I think, was there something else I could have done to help him? I just don't know the answers to those. I'll never know the answers. I lived on my nerves until my son, our son, reached his father's age. And it was like a load off my mind when my when our son reached his father's age. I thought, well, you're going to be right now. You're going to be fine. You're not going to die. I was, I was frightened. But once he got over that over that hurdle, I was I was happy. You know, I'm thinking, oh, well, there you go. Your father would be proud. You know, when it comes to things like 18th and 21sts and marriage and all that sort of stuff, that's when it knocks you around as a person who was in this position. Yeah. Of course it would. At the time, could you understand why Lenny did that? Yeah, I could actually. Looking back, I probably could have because I, I class it like they did a two-year jail sentence. That's what I say because they didn't know what was going to happen. So to me, it was like a, a jail where they had to stay until that two years was up. Then they'd open the door and you could go. You had to serve the time. And I think not knowing what was ahead of them um, was the worst. And they weren't entitled to any help. Anything you needed, we've had to pay for. There was no help 
for the, the guys that never went over to Vietnam. They had to survive afterwards themselves, and loads of them couldn't because there's been many suicides, many. I mean, how do I put I don't want to be rude. I don't want to – I'm not degrading anybody, but when the guys that went overseas came back, I was absolutely horrified. They were spat on, everything like that, right? There's other probably other women out there that were in the same boat as I was. Mm. We had to do it alone. We were nothing because our husbands didn't serve overseas. Do you think that if he was given more support by the government that he could have been helped through it? Definitely. Definitely. 100%. I mean, if they were given just a minimum amount of seeing, uh, you know, psychologists or anything like that, doctors and that, that might have helped. If they had someone ready available for them, or if the government made something, I think it'd make a world of difference to some of these guys that are still alive. Yeah, and that would have been so much to go through at such a young age. So can you just let us in on how you went about piecing your life back together again once it all happened? How did I? Um, I waited until our son was about four. I became just a mother to him, looked after him. I actually had him in cotton wool because I was terrified something had happened to him after his dad. Absolutely terrified that I'd lose him too. Then I started working for a company that trained me to help people or go into houses and help people back then that had some sort of depression problem where I could go in and sit down and talk to them and be with them. Um, then I, I left that and I went into doing it the same thing with people that were having cancer and were having chemo and I'd go in and sit there with their kids and take their kids to school and give mum a break because, you know, after chemo, the couple of days later they'd have, I think what they called, if I remember rightly, jelly belly when they were sick and they couldn't do it and I, I just started trying to help people. They would have been so lucky to have you there, Sally. Given what you went through, for you to be able to impart um, your understanding of grief and also your ability to bounce back from from adversity, I'm sure that that would have been invaluable to them. I enjoyed it. It was great. It was an absolute, it was a pleasure. I won't mention those, but there was a young lady, she had three children and she had cancer the second time. and. I went to her place every once a week for about four hours. She had kids at home and I used to get out there and play with the kids and nothing professional, just, you know, get stuff ready for tea or do kids' lunches for the next couple of days or whatever, just so that she was able to sit out in the sunshine and enjoy the sun instead of having the worry about where's the children. And it was it was an absolute honour and a privilege to be able to, to help people like that. And I think I... I thought, well, I'm doing something that should have been done for these guys in Nasho. Are you doing okay now, Sally? Um, I am not a well person. I've had a pretty torrid life with everything. I've just had a seizure. Through trying to protect and give what I can to people, I've had breakdowns and I, I sit back and I think, you know, what can I do? Um, I've got a great doctor and he's helping me and a lot of it dates back to I can't understand really why everything I had to go, you know, you go through. I've got a unit. I bought my own unit. At the present moment, I'm not allowed to drive because I had a seizure. I've got my own car. I don't know anything. I've worked hard for what I've got, and I'm proud of that. And I look back sometimes thinking, well, I wonder where we would have been if he was still alive. All right. So you mentioned at the start that you don't want your family to know the real reason why Lenny has died. Yep. 
Do you ever see a day when you might open up to your son about this? No. Only because my son didn't know his dad, right? And he's seen photos of him. And I don't want him to be upset. But my son is a funny guy. He doesn't like talking about the past. He hates talking about the past. And his father's in the past. And he says, you know, I know I had a dad. I know what happened, he said, but I just don't want to talk about it. Well, it's a lot for him to digest as well. How do you want Lenny to be remembered, though? Not only Len, not only Lenny, I want all these guys to be remembered that have served, that have had to fight these demons and had no help, have to fight them themselves. They couldn't, and they, they ended up like my husband did. I just want people to remember that these guys, they might not have got overseas, but they have demons too they've got to fight. And they can put a wall up in front of them and say, oh, yeah, I'm fine. But these guys need help. They need help and they need the government or someone to step in and say to them, you know, not just give them a medal saying that they were up in wherever. These guys need some form of help because there's other women out there that going through this at the moment, they don't know what they can do to help their husbands. Like with me, I was a nothing. I wasn't a widow because I was 23. I wasn't a single mother because I was a widow. This is what the government's got to think about. And you've got to think some of these husbands are older than me now and they've had to fight these demons alone. So many thousands and thousands of them haven't been able to. They've taken their own lives. It's just so wrong. It's too late for some of them. Far too late. And that really makes me so mad. Well, Sally... On behalf of everyone, thank you so much for your time today. You have imparted some invaluable insights here, and I'm sure that there'll be people listening right now who are going through something similar, and they'll be able to draw a lot of strength from what you've gone through. So thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, just tell them to be strong. That's the main thing. Be strong and just look out for the the signs. Be strong, ladies. Be strong and be strong men. You can do it. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to The Men Australia Forgot, telling the stories of Australia's last conscripts. There you are, Sally from Victoria, and what a powerful story she has, and I was really glad that we were able to bring you that today, because as I said, it's a side of conscription that you don't hear much about, but as we move towards getting greater reparation for the Nashos of 65 to 72, it's very important that we don't leave these women behind because they were just as much part of conscription and were impacted in ways that we'll never properly understand. So we'll keep pressing the case for the Nashos of 65 to 72. And if you've got any thoughts on what we've spoken about today, or you've got a story or an experience from national service that you want to share with us, then make sure you email me. It's the men Australia forgot at gmail.com. So one word, the men Australia forgot at gmail.com. And we'll be back with more very shortly. But for now, thanks for your time. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.